When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 57, The Delhi Sultanate. In the Classical World volume of the podcast, we introduce the Gupta Empire of the lands of India. The Gupta emerged from humble beginnings in the Ganges River Valley during the 3rd century. During the 4th century, the Gupta Empire expanded and under their king, Chandragupta II, they would control the entirety of the Ganges River Valley and its surroundings and influence over much of the east coast of the subcontinent. The emergence of the nomadic Sinites from the steppe lands of the north challenged the lands to the northwest of the Gupta Empire, pushing them back towards the Ganges Delta. The defeat of the Sinites by other peoples of the subcontinent did not enable the Gupta to recover their lost lands and they would dwindle away into non-existence by the end of the 6th century. By the 7th century various peoples and dynasties were rising to power and then being replaced in this volatile area of the world. One of the distinguishable peoples of the northwest are called the Rajputs, and they are really distinguishable by their traditions, only as historians cannot agree on their origins. Various tribes and dynasties have been described as Rajputs, and the earliest recorded history of a settlement at Delhi was made by the Tamara dynasty in the 8th century. The Tamara dynasty originated from a Rajput clan, called the Tomar. By this time, the religion of Islam had emerged in the Arabian Peninsula and its influence rapidly expanded eastwards to the Indus Valley through the Umayyad Caliphate by the 8th century. Many Indian dynasties and kingdoms would collaborate to prevent Islamic expansion deeper into the subcontinent during the 8th century. Out of these Indian dynasties, it would be the Gurjara who would become the most powerful and their presence in northern India would create a barrier that would prevent any further Islamic expansion. 
after the power of the Arabic Caliphate and the dominance of the Gurjara had diminished over the course of the 9th and 10th centuries, the lands around the Indus River Valley maintained their religious identity. The lands around the valley and to the west were mainly Islamic, while the lands to the east were mainly Hindu. Another Islamic imperial movement emerged to the west of the Indus Valley during the 10th century called the Ghaznavids. The Ghaznavids originated in Persian lands with a large amount of Turkic ethnicity. They would expand both northwards and eastwards from their heartlands. To the east was the Indus Valley and the route to the subcontinent, but to the north were the steppe lands famous for their comparatively nomadic ways of life and their expert horsemanship. Within the Hindu Kush mountain range in the modern country of Afghanistan existed a Persianate dynasty of local chieftains called the Ghurids. The Ghaznavids took control of the lands of the Ghurids and converted them to Sunni Islam. The Ghaznavids maintained power over their imperial expanse until the threat of the Seljuk Turks to their northwest weakened their position and created a power vacuum that the Ghurids were able to take advantage of. The Ghaznavids were reduced to the city of Lahore, which is in the modern country of Pakistan. The rulers of the Ghurids around this time was Sultan Muaz ad-Din Muhammad ibn Sam, more commonly referred to as Muhammad of Ghur, which referred to the homelands of the Ghurids. Muhammad would repeatedly attack the last remaining stronghold of the Ghaznavids until Lahore finally fell to him in the year 1186. The last sultan of the Ghaznavids and his son were captured and imprisoned by the Ghurids and were later executed. That was the end of the Ghaznavid Empire. This also allowed the Ghurids access to the Khyber Pass, the most well-known route through the mountains from Central Asia to the Indian subcontinent. Traversing the Khyber Pass meant that the Khurids were now in contact with the Rajputs of northwest India, and this was really bad news for the Rajputs. Muhammad had constructed a well-organised army with capable cavalry, and this was going to be a very dangerous prospect for the Rajputs. What the Indians had on their side was wealth, and this meant that they could commission larger armies than the Ghurids. But the Ghurids had specialised units which would help to balance that power. Muslim factions had invaded India before. This wasn't the first time. The Ghurids invaded the Rajput kingdom of the Sapadalaksha in 1191. The ruler of Sapadalaksha was a king from the Chahamana Rajput clan and his name was Prithviraj Chauhan. Muhammad of Ghur would lead his army through the Khyber Pass into Indian territory but would be defeated by the Chahamana and their allies with Muhammad himself being seriously injured. The Ghurids would have to retreat to safety 
But this time they would amass a sizeable army and waste little time in coming back. At the Second Battle of Tarain, the Hurids would defeat the Rajputs and capture King Prithviraj III. It is possible that Muhammad wanted to instate Prithviraj as his vassal, but ultimately this did not happen, with Prithviraj being executed. The Khurid success at the Second Battle of Tarain was a watershed moment for the Indian subcontinent. The Khurids flooded into northern India and took control of vast amounts of territory, including the city of Delhi, which was sacked in the year 1193. The Khurids would have to claim and then reclaim lost territories in their scramble for lands in northern India, but Muhammad would personally have to abandon India and head back west to defend his lands of origin. The Khurid Empire operated as a diarchy, which meant that it operated under two rulers. Muhammad's older brother, Khiath al-Din Muhammad, was the other ruler of the Khurids and he was battling for territories in the west against the Khwarazmian Empire. After Khiath's death in 1203, it was Muhammad's responsibility to defend the Khurids' Iranian plateau gains against the Khwarazmians. The Khwarazmians and their Central Asian allies scored a huge victory over the Khurids at the Battle of Ankhud. This defeat led to civil disunity for the Khurids and Muhammad was assassinated in 1206. The Khwarazmians took control of their territories, but the land around the Khyber Pass, and therefore the Indian territories, remained under Khurid control. One of the most active military generals for the Khurids in India since their succession incursion was a man called Qutbuddin Aibak. Aibak was a Mamluk. Now we have stumbled across the term Mamluk before and it's important at this stage to clarify what a Mamluk is. As we are already aware there was an Arab uprising during the 7th century in the Middle East which established the first major Islamic empire. The empire expanded towards the Iranian plateau which were lands inhabited by people of Persian descent. During this period, the lands to the north of the Middle East were being expanded into by Turkic peoples from the steppe lands of Central Asia. In the many battles that the Arabs and the Persians would have, they were commissioned Turkic peoples to fight alongside them. We refer to these Turkic peoples as slaves because essentially they were under the permanent employment of their overlords. The Arab word for slave is Mamluk, and this can be where the term has led to confusion in its meaning. It would be natural to consider that Mamluks are an ethnic group of peoples, but this isn't entirely accurate. The most well-known Mamluk dynasty of rulers is the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt, which ruled from the 13th to the 16th century. And although their specific origins may have been Turkic, a Mamluk 
could just as likely have been a Berber, as Berbers would have also been used as Mamluks, as well as many other ethnic origins of enslaved people within the Islamic kingdoms and empires. Mamluk slaves differed from domestic slaves, as Mamluks were those who were generally in military service to their overlords. They would also have to adopt Islam as their religion. Those Mamluks who were freed from slave status were still recognised as having Mamluk origin. So Kutbuddin Ibak, who started life as a slave, rose up through the military ranks before being given his freedom. But he would still be regarded as a man of Mamluk origin. It appears that Muhammad of Kur entrusted Ibak to look after affairs in India while Muhammad was absent from these lands, so he acted as a former viceroy. So when Muhammad died in 1206, Ibak took control of the Indian territories, declaring himself as the Sultan, something not immediately recognised, but ultimately accepted. This is regarded by historians as the beginning of the Delhi Sultanate. Originally ruled from Lahore, with the capital not being moved to Delhi until after Ibak's lifetime. Ibak is often remembered as the man who commissioned the construction of the Qutb Minar complex, built in commemoration of the great achievements of the Khurids in securing Indian lands. The complex is named after the Qutb Minar, the beautiful minaret which stands over 70 metres tall to this very day in the city of Delhi. At the time of its construction, it was the tallest minaret in the world. The Slave Dynasty The founding dynasty of the Delhi Sultanate was not one based on kinship. It was based on popularity and success. So if somebody could rally enough support from the nobility, then they could make a bid to oust the existing sultan and take control for themselves and sometimes by aggressive means. Often the sultans came from a military background and so the dynasty is called the slave dynasty by some historians and the Mamluk dynasty by others. Their attitude towards the existing Hindu religion in India was mixed. In some cases, Hindu temples were desecrated, but in other cases, they were left alone. There's no real evidence of a religious motivation for the Sultanate battling against the natives. It seems that it was purely about wealth and power. After the capital city had been moved to Delhi, the lands around the former capital city, Lahore, in the Punjab, came under threat from the Mongol invasions under their leader, Chinggis Khan. This caused a huge refugee crisis in the northwestern lands of the Sultanate, adding to the instability that was commonplace in these earliest years. One of the reasons put forward as to why Chinggis Khan did not invade the Delhi Sultanate is because he encountered a unicorn who told him to turn back, and so he did. 
Some historians actually suggest that Iltutmish was the true first sultan of the Delhi Sultanate because he ruled from Delhi. Iltutmish had once been the slave of the former sultan Qutbuddin Aibak and bizarrely it was while Qutbuddin Aibak was a slave himself so he was the slave of a slave. He was manumitted which essentially means that he was given his freedom. And he also married his master's daughter. So he went from being Ibak's slave to being his son-in-law. Iltutmish instated a lot of administrative stability and standardised coinage for the Delhi Sultanate, giving it the infrastructure to survive, despite the fact that there were constant rebellions and disputes in many of the regions he would construct many Islamic places of worship, education and hospitality. Iltutmish's daughter would also become the sultan after Iltutmish's lifetime and she was the first and only female sultan of Delhi, popularly called Razia Sultana. Her ascent was based on the support of nobles. With the considerable movement of the Mongols across the entire continent of Asia came displacements of peoples, even from firmly established cities such as Baghdad. Waves of refugees came from the Middle East to the Sultanate, bringing their advanced academic knowledge with them. Simple things like paper and the spinning wheel revolutionised Indian culture and industry and these were brought to India by the Sultanate. Iltutmish created an administrative system governed by the Corps of Forty. The Corps of Forty were around 40 slaves who were promoted to the rank of Emir and effectively ruled the Sultanate on behalf of the Sultan. This was fine in theory until some of these emirs started conspiring against the sultan and plotting to overthrow him in favour of a more obedient puppet. This trend would be rebalanced by the sultan Giyas Uddin Balban who had once been a member of the Corps of Forty. Balban was a strong sultan who stood up against the emirs. He made administrative and military reforms which enabled him to defend his territory against the threat of the Mongols and enabled him to secure Bengal. Bengal was quite a prize, with it being the home of the Ganges Delta. But it could be difficult to contain and maintain, being a common place to find rebellions against the Sultanate breaking out. Balban declared that as the Sultan he was the representative of God on earth and that his subjects should kiss his feet or risk physical punishment. He was a very effective monarch of the slave dynasty. Things soon destabilised after Balban's death and a Khalji statesman called Jalaluddin Khalji served as both a military general and a regent of the Delhi Sultanate. The Khalji originated from Afghan lands and many of the Turkic nobles of the Sultanate 
were wary of the Khalaji. He deposed and killed the Sultan, who was only a small child at the time, and he would take control of the Sultanate, ushering in the Khalaji dynasty of the Delhi Sultanate. Khalaji dynasty Jalaluddin Khalaji had a reputation for being a kind-hearted sultan, which made him popular with the public. Not only was he able to resist a Mongol invasion of his territory, but the Delhi Sultanate became an attractive prospect for Mongol migrants, seeking a better life by willingly converting to Islam and choosing to live in the Sultanate. Jalaluddin's clemency would attract opponents to challenge his authority though, and one such opponent was his nephew, Alauddin Khalaji. Alauddin deceived Jalaluddin by luring him into a trap whereby Jalaluddin was coerced into meeting with his nephew and subsequently struck down by one of his men. Alauddin would proclaim himself as the new sultan and he had already demonstrated his ruthlessness. Alauddin would embark on a programme of aggression against neighbouring dynasties and kingdoms in an attempt to bring them under the influence of the Sultanate. One of the geographical features of the Indian subcontinent is the Vindhya range of highlands that runs along the line of the Narmada River. This area that runs from east to west loosely separates the northern subcontinent from the southern subcontinent. In general, the Delhi Sultanate prospered to the north of the Vindhyas. Even before the death of Jalaluddin, Alauddin successfully campaigned to the south of the Vindhyas and specifically in an area inhabited by a clan of the Yadava peoples centred on the city of Devagiri. After Jalaluddin's death, Alauddin would take on a seemingly relentless project of taking control of other territories. Alauddin sent military generals into Gujarat to take control of the area and to enjoy the benefits of the seaports of the area. After this, Alauddin would look back to the southern lands of the subcontinent. By the year 1306, Alauddin had secured vast territories across the north of India and subdued the aggressions of the Mongols to the Sultanate's north, so he would now be in a powerful position to threaten the lands to the south of the Vindhyas. During the successes of the Gujarat campaigns, Alauddin had acquired the services of a slave called Malik Kafur, who would become a prominent military general. He proved his worth to Alauddin during the Mongol invasions of the Sultanate. In 1308, the Delhi Sultanate would subjugate the Devagiri Yadava, returning to the lands that they raided in the previous decade, but this time with a more imperial ambition. Malik Kafur would be entrusted with these southern campaigns. From here, Kafur would be able to subjugate the Kakatiyas, bringing the lands under Delhi influence to the east coast of the subcontinent, and the Huisalas that would bring them to the northern borders of Tamilakam in the far south. 
the treasures of these lands would bring great excitement to the Sultanate. Sultan Alauddin Khalaji would die from illness in 1316. After an impressive reign, and in the aftermath, Malik Kafur would fall out of favour in the vacuum of Alauddin's death, and he too would be killed by his opponents in a dramatic fall from grace. After some years of uncertainty surrounding the succession, another slave general of Alauddin called Khusro Khan would become the sultan. Khusro Khan was deposed by a group of rebels under the command of a man called Khiath al-Din Tughlaq in 1320, and this would initiate the beginning of the Tughlaq dynasty of Delhi sultans. Tughlaq dynasty The southern kingdoms of India were full of wealth, so when they stopped paying tribute to the Delhi Sultanate, the early sultans of the Tughlaq dynasty of rulers would make it their business to extract tribute from these kingdoms once again. Kiath would send his son Muhammad bin Tughlaq to the south to achieve this subjugation, and Muhammad was very successful, destroying the Kakatiya kingdom in the process. It would not be long afterwards that Kiath al-Din Tughlaq was killed in what appeared to be an accident, but the nature of the accident was not completely clear due to conflicting sources. Sources state that Kiath al-Din Tughlaq died when a pavilion erected in his honour collapsed while he and others were inside it. The cause of collapse was stated to be due to the pavilion being struck by lightning, and it was this untimely death which brought his son, Muhammad, to the throne. It would be during the reign of Muhammad that the celebrated Maghrebi traveller Ibn Battuta, whose travels even superseded those of Marco Polo, arrived in the Delhi Sultanate. In his account of the death of Hiath, he suggested that the collapse of the pavilion was planned and that his own son, Muhammad, may have even been behind it, perhaps ordering an elephant stampede that would initiate the pavilion's destruction. The whole question of Muhammad's character is indicative of the questionable nature of his reign. On the one hand, it can be portrayed as quite benevolent, but on the other hand, he can be portrayed as very heartless, so either one of these possibilities are possible. The character of Muhammad gives us no real clue about whether he killed his father. He was definitely capable of it, but not every source supports this version of events. The reign of Muhammad represents a time when the Delhi Sultanate reached its peak, but by the end of his reign, the Sultanate had begun to fragment. Muhammad was an iconic Sultan of the Delhi Sultanate, perhaps even the most memorable. His character is deemed to be somewhat eccentric, but there is no doubt that he was a very intelligent man. Ibn Battuta would write 
that at times he was completely within Muhammad's favour, earning him privileges, but at other times he was viewed with suspicion and denied certain freedoms. It seems that Muhammad's opinions on many things could swing erratically, and this would affect his attitudes and his policies, which could dramatically change. His wrath could seem inhumane and limitless with stories of people being flailed alive and innocent parties being punished for things out of their control. It would not matter whether the victims were Hindu or Muslim, even though Muhammad would endeavour to force mass conversions on some of the Hindu societies that he encountered. He would initiate the mass production of a new coinage, only to have to recall it all due to it being easy to imitate. Perhaps the, one of the things that Mohammed bin Tukhlaq is most remembered for is his attempt to move the capital city. When we say that he'd moved the capital city, he would not just choose a different city to rule from, but actually relocate the entire population of Delhi. His motivation may have been the agricultural failures around Delhi, but his choice of city for the relocation would be the fortress city of Devagiri, to the south of the Vindhyas. Muhammad would rename the city Dolatabad. Dolatabad is 600 miles to the south of Delhi, but the actual journey across some rugged terrain would have been a lot longer. Despite Muhammad's best attempts to glorify this journey as being one of great progress to a better city with better security, further away from Mongol aggressions, many of the population would be reluctant to go, with Muhammad resorting to forceful actions to make sure it happened. Of course, not everyone would survive the arduous journey. Once there, the new capital remained in place for just eight years, with the arid landscape proving to be just as problematic when it came to agriculture for the city, and dangerous rebellions from within forced Mohammed to make the difficult decision to move the entire population all the way back to Delhi in the north. The relationship between Bengal and Delhi had decayed during this period with the local rulers in Bengal battling among themselves, with the result being that an independent sultanate emerged. Dolatabad was also ruled locally following the second relocation of the capital and a rebellious movement sought to devolve itself from the sultanate, with the result being the establishment of the Barmani Sultanate. Both of the breakaway sultanates were officially Sunni Muslim states, so although the Delhi Sultanate had influenced the religion of the areas, by the time of the end of Muhammad's reign in 1351, both of the states had established full independence. The size of the Delhi Sultanate, although still large, was now a fraction of what it had become during the early years of Muhammad's reign. Decline. Muhammad's successor was his cousin, Firuz Shah Tukhlaq, and he was a capable administrator of the region. He lacked Muhammad's aggression and was therefore 
unable to take any positive action to regain the sultanates of Bengal and Barmany. In fact, he would have enough to deal with, just keeping the remainder of the sultanate together. And he did do just that. For being a competent administrator and tolerant ruler, his public appreciated him, as can often be the case in the aftermath of a chaotic rule. He would also invest in building projects, including within the city of Delhi itself. Firuzi's reign was comparatively stable, but things started to fall apart after his long reign. A succession crisis further debilitated the Sultanate and some of the more central and by now easternmost of the remaining Delhi Sultanate lands began to act with more independence. The most notable initially was the area under the influence of the city of Jompur, governed by members of what we can call the Sharki dynasty. While the Delhi Sultanate was in turmoil, a powerful movement that had emerged to the north invaded the Sultanate. This movement was called the Timurids, led by their first Amir, the powerful Timur, often referred to as Tamerlane. Since the rise of the Mongols during the 13th century, a hybrid of the Turkic peoples and the Mongolic peoples emerged, and a particular branch emerged in and around the lands of Transoxiana, before expanding to the west and the south into Khorasan and the Iranian plateau, which brought it onto the northwest borders of the Delhi Sultanate. Timur viewed himself as a great emperor and wanted to restore the glory of the Mongol hordes by creating a new empire comparable to that of Chengiz Khan. Timur was in control of the Hindu Kush and so he crossed the Indus River and attacked the Delhi Sultanate. He would defeat Sultanate armies and then march into Delhi. The Sultan fled, leaving Delhi at the mercy of the Timurids who destroyed the city. Treasures were plundered and the population of Delhi was massacred, although it is claimed that Muslims suffered far less than Hindus. This was really the end of Delhi as a significant imperial force. Timur chose to withdraw from Delhi rather than occupy it, and the sorry process of restoring the devastated city began. The Delhi Sultanate lasted for another century into the 16th century, but most books show very little or no interest to the period following Timur's invasion. We certainly know that other regions broke away, forming independent sultanates in the early 15th century, including Malwa and Gujarat. The Tughlaqs, as the ruling dynasty, were displaced by the Sayyids during the 1410s, and they ruled what was left of the sultanate until the middle of the 15th century, until they too were displaced by the final dynasty of the Delhi Sultanate, the Lodi. The first Lodi Sultan was a man called Bahlul Khan Lodi. 
Balu Lukan had attempted to take control of Delhi by military means, but had failed to do so before the final Sayyid Sultan Alam Shah decided to abdicate, leaving Balu Lukan to be selected to become the new Sultan. During his long reign, the neighbouring Jompur Sultanate under their Sultan Hussein Shah had ambitions of conquering the Delhi Sultanate. Balul Khan was equal to the military offences of Hussein Shah and eventually even ran the Jompur Sultan out of Jompur and even further east into the refuge of the Bengal Sultanate. This allowed Balul Khan to move into and occupy Jompur, adding it to the Delhi Sultanate once more. This was the first major expansion for over a hundred years since the reign of Muhammad bin Tughlaq. Jampur would remain a part of the Delhi Sultanate right the way through to the 16th century. Thanks to the Delhi Sultanate's influence since the beginning of the 13th century, many areas of India that had previously claimed to observe Hinduism and Buddhism now observed Islam making the Indian continent one of those rare places in the world where you could claim such geographical religious diversity. Moving into the 16th century and the affluence of the Delhi Sultanate was diminishing due to the success of trade through their lands diminishing. The nature of global trade was modernising and new methods, routes and relationships were being forged at a rapid rate. Balul Khan was succeeded as the Sultan of the Delhi Sultanate by his son Sikandar Khan Laudi. Sikandar realised the concerns regarding trade through the Sultanate and worked hard to encourage it. He is actually remembered as a very capable and successful Sultan. He strengthened relationships with Bengal and expanded his influence. He is also remembered for being a talented poet so despite the fact that things in India had changed significantly over the course of the previous two centuries, the Sultanate was still able to exist without the turmoil that had been known during previous reigns. After Sikandar died, rule of the Sultanate passed to his son Ibrahim Khan Lodi, and this would mark a major turning point in the Sultanate's fortunes. Ibrahim had not inherited his father's diplomatic talents and he alienated some of his nobles, most notably the governor of Lahore, Dolat Khan Lodi. Dolat was so disgruntled with Ibrahim that he was to look to the Timurids for assistance in overthrowing him. The Timurids by this time were a shadow of their former selves. Once great under the reign of Timur at the turn of the 15th century, the Timurid Empire had fragmented under pressure from the Safavid Persians and the Uzbeks of the Khanate of Bukhara, and the Timurid ruler Babur was now restricted to a territory based around the modern Afghan capital city of Kabul. Dolat, governor of Lahore, invited Babur Amir of Kabul, to invade the Delhi Sultanate, so Ibrahim sent forces to Lahore to depose Dolat. Babur 
had maintained ambitions to conquer territories east of the Indus Valley in order to emulate the great Timurid ruler Timur, so he was more than happy to invade the Sultanate. Initially, Babur would attempt to occupy Punjab by sponsoring Dolat's army and encouraging other Sultanate statesmen opposed to Ibrahim to defect to the rebel cause. Ibrahim was able to resist the rebels and maintain control of Punjab, so Babur would need to take matters into his own hands. The culminating battle was at the Battle of Panipat in 1526. Babur led a Timurid army into the heart of the Delhi Sultanate and with the supporting innovation of gunfire was able to score a huge victory over the Delhi Sultan Ibrahim, slaughtering a huge amount of the Sultanate's army and killing Ibrahim himself. This victory enabled Babur to take control of the city of Delhi, so now the Sultanate had fallen under Timurid rule. Therefore, the Delhi Sultanate had now collapsed completely and a new Mughal Empire was established in its place. The dawn of the Mughal Empire took India into a new era of power and into the age of exploration and colonialism. So our story of India will continue in the next volume. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Delhi Sultanate. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you enjoy the podcast in general, uh, why not consider supporting the podcast by visiting our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com and clicking on the Patreon link where you can sign up to make a monthly contribution to the podcast. It really, really does help. When you do so, you'll become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you can qualify for gifts and rewards. All the details are on the Patreon site. And if you want to access bonus material or you would like to listen to the podcast ad-free, then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, drop me a line at history of the world podcast at mail.com. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you thought about this week's episode. Listener messages and reviews. Just the one uh, email to read out this week uh, from Ian Katz, who's written in and said, Hi, Chris, I'm listening to the podcast on Spotify. I've reached volume one, episode 18. Thanks so much for such an interesting explanation of our history. You describe the concepts clearly and simply. It's all readily understandable. All the best, Ian Katz from Kafar Sabah in Israel. 
thank you very much, Ian. And uh, for everyone else, don't forget to write in and let me know what your thoughts are about the latest episodes or the podcast in general. I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, that's it for another week. Uh, our next subject is going to be a series of episodes on Japan. Uh, but the first one will have to introduce us to the earliest um, emergencies of Japan. So it will lead into the medieval period of Japan. Fascinating uh, culture, uh, quite unique. And uh, so the first episode will set that up. So something to really look forward to, something different. Uh, anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you so much. Enjoy your week and be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.